you would, open your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 22 this morning. John chapter 6, you can also find that on the Pew Bible, page 891. And once you've found your place, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? John chapter 6, we'll start in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And I can't help but read verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I give you thanks for these words inspired by you for our eternal good, for our edification, for our strengthening, for the building into us faith in the Son of God. I pray that this morning we might find our spiritual nourishment in the bread that He provides by giving us Himself. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the aim of today's message is that we see Jesus Christ as the true bread who gives life to the world. That message will unfold as Jesus answers a series of questions from the Jews 
They will ask him three questions. The first one is seen in verse 25. When did you come here? The second is in verse 28. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And the third in verse 30. What sign do you do? What work do you perform, Jesus? And as we listen to this conversation this morning between Jesus and the Jews, what we find is that God is actually addressing us as well. He is exposing our own fleshly motives to transform them into godly motives. He's testing our faith to ensure it's in the right place. He's attending to our deepest needs to reveal himself as the ultimate satisfier. John has not recorded this conversation between Jesus and the Jews so that you kind of kick back, enjoy a good story, give the preacher a pat on the back, and then go away unchanged. He includes these things so that you yourself can't help but conclude on this morning, my soul is starving for something that truly satisfies and there's nothing in this world that's comparable to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and He has the words of eternal life that I desperately need. These words exist in your scriptures to create in you every day in the midst of every circumstance the kind of response that we hear off the lips of Asaph in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? And on earth there's nothing I desire besides you. But let's set the stage before we jump into the dialogue. On the first day, I mean on the, on the day before, Jesus performed a miracle and fed more than 5,000 people with five barley loaves and a couple of fish. He basically turned a kid's lunch pack into enough food to feed an army. And the point of it all was not the bread itself, but to reveal Jesus as the all-sufficient King of Israel. Jesus even confirms that reality, that He is the all-sufficient King of Israel, by refusing kingship at the hands of a bunch of zealots, not only because he's already king, which he proves by walking on the water, but also because he has a mission to accomplish. He's a kind of king who doesn't deliver his people through imperial force. He's the kind of king that goes to a cross and dies and conquers for his people by dying on a cross for their sins. So, the message of the bread miracle, together with walking on the water, was that Jesus is the all-sufficient King of Israel. He meets all of our needs, including our greatest need of reconciliation with God. And now we come to verse 22. It's the next day, and the crowd that Jesus fed is looking all over the place for Him. And they're confused about where He's at, because they, don't, they didn't get on the boat with the disciples. They don't know He's crossed to the other side on the waters. Nor do they really care. All they want to do is find out where he went. So they get in some boats and row over to Capernaum. Verse 24 says, seeking Jesus. 
And they finally find him and ask their first question in verse 25. They say, Rabbi, when did you come here? That seems like a straightforward question, especially with all the confusion over how Jesus crossed the waters. But Jesus sees something different hidden beneath the surface of their question. He sees what we are unable to see in others, namely the purposes of the heart. He knows us through and through. There's no part of us that escapes Jesus' holy gaze or His exhaustive knowledge. John told us in chapter 2 that Jesus needs no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man. He knows what is inside of us. He sees what these Jews are hiding behind their question. And, that, and, what it, and what they're hiding is their own unbelief. The same unbelief that was present in their hearts before the, the bread miracle is the same belief, unbelief present in their hearts after the bread miracle. They're not believing Jesus is the Son of God. So rather than dealing with their question and leaving them comfortable in their unbelief, Jesus exposes their unbelief in other words, what's of most importance here to Jesus is not when I got to Capernaum, but why you're seeking me to begin with. So he gives his answer in verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now that is an amazing statement in light of what verse 14 tells us, which we saw last week. Verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done. What does Jesus mean? You're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They did see the sign that he did. What's Jesus talking about? What Jesus means is that there are two ways to see his signs. One way is that you can look at the signs with your physical eyes and even find them to be pretty amazing feats of power and provision. And another way is that you can look along the signs with your spiritual eyes to see what they're ultimately pointing to. It's kind of like uh, a sun. The sun a sun ray that's piercing through the clouds. You can look at the sun ray without ever noticing the sun. Without ever seeing this glorious ball of fire some 92 million miles away from Earth. And similarly, you can look at Jesus' signs and stop there. Or you can look along Jesus' signs to see His own true glory. It's not that the first way, looking at Jesus' signs, is bad in and of itself. Jesus told us in chapter 5 that the Father gave Him these kinds of miraculous works to bear witness about Him. And John even tells us in several places throughout His Gospel that Jesus' signs are part and parcel to Him revealing His own glory, the glory of God's Son. So it's not bad to look at Jesus' signs. 
They're meant to move you to faith. Where the Jews go wrong is when all they want from Jesus' signs is to look at them without ever looking along them to behold the glory of God's Son. In other words, the signs never budge their hardened hearts toward faith in God's Son to whom, all, to whom all the signs are pointing. The signs in John's Gospel are always miracles that display Jesus' glory and identify Him as the only Son of God. But when you only satisfy yourself with looking at the signs, without looking along the signs, then you really don't see the signs as you should be seeing them. So in the case of the bread miracle, you can look at the physical provision of bread itself without ever looking along the miraculous provision to embrace Jesus as the all-sufficient King of Israel. And that's Jesus' point in verse 26. They're, seek they're not seeking Him because they saw signs and have been moved by those signs to trust Him with everything, to confide in His all-sufficient kingly care. They're only seeking Him because they want more bread in their tummies. They're no different than their forefathers, Israel. God performed signs and wonders in the Exodus. He delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He brought them across the Red Sea with a mighty outstretched arm, and He swallowed up Pharaoh's armies. He brought them into fellowship with Himself as a people, adopting them as sons, even though none of them deserved it. Next chapter, Exodus 16, I'm hungry. I don't want to be here. I want to go back to the meat pots and fish in Egypt. They saw the signs, too, and they missed God. The same is taking place here in Capernaum. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus came that their hearts would be full of God. But all they want from Him are bellies full of bread. You know, we often laugh when we as parents fix ourselves a little uh, savory snack on a Saturday afternoon and sit down on the couch to eat it, and it's not too long before one of our children comes and says, Daddy, can I sit with you? And you say, sure, son, I'd love for you to sit with me. And he says, Daddy, I love you. And before, it's, before there's enough time for you to say, I love you too, he says, can I have a bite? And you're going, wait a minute, do you really want me, or do you want my food? You know, we laugh at these sorts of responses from our children, but in some ways, they're actually a portrait of how we all relate to Jesus at times. We come to Jesus merely for what He can do for us, quite apart from having Jesus Himself. We seek after Him to give us another sermon or lesson, quite apart from having Himself, quite apart from wanting to know Him more deeply. We seek after Him to get rid of our anger problems and our greed, but quite apart from intimacy with Him in prayer and communion with Him through the Scriptures. 
We seek after Jesus to save our neighbors, but quite apart from enjoying his presence through sharing the gospel with them. We seek after Jesus to pay the next bill, but quite apart from finding pleasures at his right hand. We are right to seek him for all these things, but we are wrong when we seek him only for these things. He loves us. He loves for us to ask and to seek and to knock, but only when our asking and seeking and knocking bring us into deeper communion with him, that we might ultimately have him as the ultimate treasure, not merely his gifts. In this miracle, the goal of the bread is having Jesus himself. But these Jews were seeking Jesus merely to get the bread. So, Jesus then directs them to look along the sign to himself as the Son of Man. Verse 27, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So how's the bread miracle to be understood? It's to be understood as a sign pointing beyond itself to a heavenly reality. Not to more perishing food, but to the food that endures to eternal life. Jesus is pointing them to the same thing Isaiah was pointing to them years before in chapter 55 of Isaiah. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not Satisfy. Listen diligently to me, says the Lord, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear to me, and hear, come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Jesus is telling them, that the nature of the food they're chasing perishes. It will feed their bodies for so long, and then they will die without having eternal life. You see, their chief problem is not that they need more food for their little Jewish kingdom on earth. Their chief problem is that they're not in the kingdom at all and will never be in the kingdom if they don't recognize the Son of Man standing right before them. He alone is able to give them food that endures to eternal life because God has set his seal on him and nobody else. If Jesus is pulling this uh, Son of Man title from Daniel 7, as he has before in this gospel, what he's saying is that there's only one person, only one who can stand before the Ancient of Days, Yahweh himself, and receive dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations shall serve him. There's only one person who shares his everlasting dominion and whose kingdom will never pass away. And that one person is the Son of Man, now revealed in the person of Jesus. God has authorized Jesus and Jesus alone to give eternal life because Jesus is the Son of Man. God anointed Jesus with the Spirit under John's baptism, and he continues to give Jesus the Spirit without measure. He gives Jesus works that bear witness to his divine person, namely his God's Son, and that bear witness to the nature of his mission. He came to save us. God even wrote an entire Bible that tells us exactly what kind of Savior we need, a God-man who dies in our place, and what kind of Son he would send to be that Savior, his own Son, 
to take on flesh. The Father has certainly set his seal on Jesus. So if these Jews are to have life at all, they must recognize that it is only Jesus, the Son of Man, who's able to give eternal life. The food he offers us is a food that keeps on giving, much like the water he offered the Samaritan woman as a water was a water that would, be a, a water that would become in a person a well of water, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Much like that, the nature of Jesus' food is that it constantly nourishes us with a life of unhindered fellowship with God that's characteristic of the age to come. That's what John means in his gospel by eternal life. Without the Son of Man, we're all separated from God and will never enjoy His presence in the age to come. But with the Son of Man, we have communion with God and even begin to experience the life of the age to come now by faith. So it's not merely about the duration of life that Jesus is going to give us sometime in the, in the future when He brings His kingdom, but also the quality of life Jesus is glad to give us now through our relationship with God. That's the kind of life we were made for. That's the kind of life we need. And that's the kind of life we find offered to us by the Son of Man, by Jesus Himself. Now, at this point, you might, how might you respond to the dialogue? How might you respond? Would you respond with a, right, Jesus, I am totally laboring for the wrong kind of food. I'm chasing this man for some bread, and he's offering me God himself and everything that comes with him. What more could I want? I am yours. You might respond that way. And that would be a good response. But that's not how the Jews respond. And I might add that when our flesh is at its best, that's not how we, res we would respond either. Like the Jews, we're vulnerable to turning Jesus' gift of eternal life into something that we obtain by our own doings. We see this in the second question the Jews posed to Jesus. Verse 28. What must we do to be doing the works of God? They got part of what Jesus said, right? Namely, do not labor where they're pulling the work language from. Do not labor, do not work, literally, for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life. That much of what Jesus said has led them to focus on the works God requires of them. But their unbelief has sunk them into a world of self-confidence and self-righteousness. They ask Jesus the question, assuming they can actually perform all the works that God would require of them. But all Jesus meant by working for eternal life was simple faith in He who is the Son of Man and what He has come to give, which is eternal life. No amount of their own works could please God. Only one work pleases God, and that is faith 
in Jesus. Verse 29, this is the work of God. Notice that Jesus changes their question from works of God to one work. This is the one work God requires, namely that you believe in Him whom He has sent. It may catch some of you off guard that Jesus would call faith a work in this passage, but He means nothing different than what Paul teaches in his discussion about justification. That one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The work God requires in John 6 is the same faith Paul speaks of in Romans places like Romans 3. Both of them are teaching that a relationship with God comes not by our own merits, but solely by looking away from self to the merits of another, namely Jesus Christ. As Jesus said in verse 27, the Son of Man will give you food enduring to eternal life. And since God has chosen that He alone does the giving that necessarily excludes you obtaining it by your own power or in your own strength. In God's economy, the only work required of you is that of receiving and believing. Receiving the Son of Man's food and believing God sent Him. So we can stop all our vain striving after the pleasures of this world because we found a much greater pleasure in knowing Christ And having all of Him, not just part of Him, having all of Him simply by trusting. He is awesome in splendor, unbounded in joy, and He is heaven's ultimate treasure. We won't find anything or anyone more satisfying. Moreover, we never, never do we need to worry about not doing enough works to please God from one day to the next. The whole point of God sending His Son was that only He could do all the works God required of man. And He did them all for us. And by believing in Jesus, we simultaneously unite ourselves to His achievements, to His merit, to His righteousness. And that union means that never again do I need to fret that my eternal life is in jeopardy for not measuring up when I miss a prayer time in the morning. My relationship with God is not based on my works, but on the work of Jesus Christ. And since His work is lacking in nothing, I need not waste my energies running around all of my life afraid of a Father that's displeased with me. But I must spend my energies enjoying a Father who's pleased with me. Enjoying Him and then ministering His amazing grace to others. That's what my energies will be used for. This is the work God requires, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. We're not talking about a mental ascent to facts here about Jesus on this page or in this sermon. Not just a mental ascent, an intellectual embrace of what I'm saying. We're talking about a glad-hearted acceptance of the person of Jesus Himself, a yielding of everything to His rule, an 
an ever-deepening affection for His glory, a casting of ourselves at His feet for eternal life. That's the faith Jesus is talking about. That's the work God requires here. But how is it that Jesus could say all this about Himself anyway? First, He claims that the bread ultimately points to Himself, to the eternal life He gives. Then He has the audacity to tell the Jews their works amount to a hill of beans, and then none of them will be worthy of eternal life. And what they needed was simply to trust in Jesus. He is the one God sent. There might even be an allusion here to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, where God says that He would send the messenger of the covenant. This is the one whom God sent to restore the covenant with His people Israel. And Jesus tells them, is telling them, sending there telling them, you've got to believe in me like that. It's the one God had sent. And they're going, how is it that he could make such claims? The Jews raised this question in verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? In other words, you tell us that none of our works will gain us eternal life. What about you? What work do you perform? Which again shows they missed his point. First they're fixed on physical bread. Then they resort to self-confidence. Now they're asking Jesus to prove himself. Let's have a work comparison here. What work do you perform? Verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So if you're as great as you say you are, we want to see something more than a few barley loaves turned into enough for 5,000. Show us that you're greater than Moses by raining down bread from heaven for all of Israel. Let's see that. In short, they're calling Jesus' bluff. They want him to prove that he has grounds for making such claims. Their attitude is very similar to what we observed in the Jewish authorities back in chapter 2, after Jesus drives all the money changers out with the whip. And they, tell, and they, they ask him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They want him to prove himself. Jesus took them to, Jesus took them to the resurrection in chapter 2. In chapter 6, he's taking them to the cross. That's his sign. So Jesus answers in verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. So fail on that Bible quotation, Jews. Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. If they read their Bibles with eyes of faith, they'd see that God gave their fathers bread from heaven, and He did it through the person of His Son. He did it through the person of His divine Son, just like Paul says he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the sa from the same spirit 
They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Go back and read the Exodus in light of that. It'd blow your mind. Kind of like what Jude says when I ran across Jude the other day. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, what in the world? Jesus saved them out of Egypt. Jesus is feeding them in the wilderness. If they read their Bibles with the eyes of faith, they see that God provided bread from heaven to the people of Israel in the wilderness through the person of His divine Son. So it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. It was my Father through me. So he goes on. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And what does he mean by that? Verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they want something greater than Moses, right? And in coming, and, and in comes Jesus, telling them that not only was Moses not the one giving bread in the wilderness, but also that something infinitely better than the manna has come down from heaven. God's own Son has come down from heaven. The one who had fed them bread from heaven was now incarnate as the true bread from heaven. Jesus identifies himself as the true bread from heaven. That means he's the fulfillment of what the manna in the wilderness pointed to all along. You see these statements in John's Gospel. Jesus was the true light. Right? God was a pillar of fire in the wilderness. Yeah, Jesus is the true light. He's the fulfillment of what the pillar of fire looked to. The provision he provides for his people. You see Jesus calling himself, I'm the true vine. Unlike Israel, which is the sour vine. I'm the true one. I'm the fulfillment of what everything that's going on with Israel looked to. So you see these statements in the Gospel of John. And Jesus, by calling himself the true bread from heaven, he means more than just I'm the genuine one. He means that he is the fulfillment of what the manna in the wilderness pointed to all along. The bread God rained down from heaven in the wilderness served Israel by giving them a picture of a much greater salvation God was bringing through His Son. And Jesus is telling him that that salvation has now arrived in Himself. The manna in the wilderness foreshadowed the day when God would send bread from heaven that would not merely satisfy the people's hungry stomachs, but would satisfy the people's hungry souls, and Jesus is that supreme satisfier. His resources are infinite, His love is measureless, and His trustworthiness is unchanging. The manna in the wilderness looked to the day when God would reveal His glory, not merely in a cloud upon feeding the people, but in a Son whom He would send to earth. And Jesus is that supreme Son. He is the glory of God revealed in human flesh, the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The manna in the wilderness encouraged the people to watch for the day when God would provide bread, not merely for the life of Israel, but for the life of the entire world. 
And Jesus is that life for Jews and Gentiles alike. That's an amazing truth when you consider the portrait that John paints of the world. The world is the great mass of people on earth, all seven billion of us or so, who are full of darkness, bent on ourselves, rebellious against the God who created us, ruled by the devil himself, and deserving of eternal judgment under God's wrath. As you read earlier from Ephesians 2, we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. And here we find God sending His Son into the world to give people like us life. Life. Rebels like us, life. We are so undeserving. And God's love is infinitely great to give us such life. The manna in the wilderness could only deliver the people from death temporarily. But it taught them to hope for a day when God would provide the bread that delivered from death eternally. And Jesus is that deliverance from death. He lived your life. He bore your sins. He suffered the wrath you deserved. He died your death. And He rose victorious for your eternal joy in God. That's His sign to the Jews. He's living proof of everything He said about where to find eternal life. And God vindicated everything He said when He raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. We don't need to look for signs to know how to obtain eternal life. We need not look, as Paul says the Jews do in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. The Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. We don't need to look for signs. Because Christ Himself has been crucified. This is what we preach, Paul says. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We don't need to look for signs to know how to obtain eternal life. God's decisive sign came with the death and resurrection of His Son. So everything we read here comes with blood-bought, grave-conquering assurance that Jesus really is the true bread who gives life to the world. The question is, is your soul hungry for Him? Is your soul hungry this morning, but laboring to find satisfaction with the world and the pleasures that it throws at you. This text encourages us to forsake the world's cheap imitations for life by running to Jesus that you may truly live. I saw a car driving around on the street this week. It had like all kinds of college paraphernalia on it. Is that the right word? Advertisements. All over. There you go. Got some head shakes there. Uh, advertisements all over the outside of the car and... You know, and women in provocative clothing and party at this bar at this time, all the advertisements and all those car wraps. And it's like, and it gives you the name of the company, and then this is where you truly live. 
The world has a message it's preaching to you on where you find true life. All over the place. But this text is encouraging us not to find life there, but to find life in Jesus Himself. Is your spirit weary from working to obtain eternal life by ever looking inward for the wherewithal to just be good enough before God? This text teaches us to forsake all of our vain efforts in attempting to save ourselves, knowing that Jesus did everything God requires of us already. And then we can find in Him great rest for our spirit in receiving the life that He gives as the Son of Man. We can see rest with the, the humble activity. Not, you know, the, the picture of these people... When Jesus says, uh, do not labor for the food, you can see them laboring for this kind of food. Back in, back in the text, where is he? Where is he? Can't find him. Where is he? Let's get in these boats that blew across in the storm. Let's get over the sea. Let's find him. Where is he? Where? They are laboring in vain so that they can have more bread in their bellies. And we do the same thing. But Jesus is saying, no, you find rest from all of that striving when the humble activity of your entire being in everything you do is nothing but all I have is Christ. It's nothing but singing all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life like you did at the start of this service. So may that be the humble activity of our entire being. I have nothing but Christ. Is your heart fearful, tired, Beat down, angry, disappointed with the circumstances around you? This text is telling us that the answer is not simply run away from the circumstances, control more of the externals, dominate the people around me, isolate myself from everybody. The answer is keep coming to Jesus for the true food that endures to eternal life. He'll never disappoint you, and He never tires of you coming to Him. He died that you might have this life in you. And He's ready to give you Himself in full every moment of every day without hesitation. Is your mind confused about anything I've said this morning? That may very well be my own fault. I'm not always clear as I want to be, but if that's true for you, then come see me after the service. I love talking about Jesus with people. And me and the other brothers would love to answer any questions you have about him. So come see us following the service if that's you. And we'll do our best to point you to him again. We don't have anything more valuable to offer you than him. Jesus Christ, what we see in this text is that Jesus Christ is the true bread who gives life to the world. God sent him from heaven to die and rise again that you might have life with God, that you might again be reconciled with God and feast your soul upon Him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I give you thanks for your word. I pray that it would generate life in our souls. 
that we would turn away from those things which keep us from Him. We'd cease from all of our vain striving to satisfy ourselves with things that are fleeting away, things that are passing, and give us grace to pursue the Son of Man like never before, knowing that He's already pursued us. He's already come and died our death, and He's risen again, that we might have Him for life. So come and work these things in us. Work this kind of faith in us. That we might say at the end of today and tomorrow and the rest of our days, Whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. In His name we pray. Amen.